Come on in. Sit back and relax. You're listening to episode 212 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, founder of Ezra Group Consulting. And this podcast features interviews, news, and analysis all about the trends and best practices around wealth management technology. My guest for this episode is Marcus New, the founder and CEO of InvestX. Let me just give you a quick bio on Marcus. Marcus is a pioneer in the pre-IPO asset class with a career that spans over three decades in the private and public financial markets. Now, Investex was founded in 2014. Uh, before that, Marcus was the founder and chairman of Stockhouse Publishing, one of North America's leading online financial communities and a global hub for accredited investors, which he exited to a strategic investor in 2019. Prior to launching Stockhouse, Marcus built Stock Group Media, an online information company whose client base consisted of the top Canadian brokerage firms, global institutional sales desks, and hedge funds. Marcus has served as the past president of the Vancouver chapter and Canadian conference chair for the Entrepreneurs Organization, and he's an alumni of MIT's Birthing of Giants program. He holds a BA with a business major from Trinity Western University. All right, we're ready to go on to the interview with Marcus, but before we get started, let's talk about tech stacks. Now, at Ezra Group, we've seen tech stacks of hundreds of RIAs, and let me tell you, most of them are loaded down with tech debt. So you shouldn't feel too bad about yours, but let's face it, tech debt is like a giant anchor holding back your business growth. If you want to free your firm for exponential growth, you should run, not walk, to our website, ezragroup.com, and fill out the Contact Us form. Our experienced team can evaluate your current tech ecosystem, deliver targeted recommendations, optimize your existing systems and operations, or run an RFP and help you implement new software to take your firm to the next level. You can take advantage of our free consultation offer by going to ezragroup.com. A few quick housekeeping items that we always do before the interview. Uh, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Check out investinothers.org. That's the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. They do a lot of good work in our industry, raising money to donate to charities that are uh, either run by or helped by financial advisors. All right, ready to go. Let's kick this thing off. I'm excited to introduce our next guest. It is Marcus New, CEO of InvestX. Marcus, hey man, thanks for being here. Hey, great to be here, Craig. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, I'm always interested to have uh, interesting players on the, on the on the space who are doing interesting things that we can talk about for technology for the wealth management space. So um, where are you calling from? I'm actually phoning from our Vancouver office today, visiting nice. up in the West Coast and you know, kind of moving between there and our New York office. But uh, it's a bit of a hike between the two, <laughs> but both have their great benefits. Uh, I like Vancouver a lot. I don't get to go there very often, but it's a it's a really beautiful place. It is. I say I go one for brains and one for beauty. <laughs> that's a good that's a good saying. I'm I'm in New Jersey, so we're using the power of technology to bring the coasts together on this podcast. So let's kick it off, Marcus. Can you give us a thirty second elevator pitch for Investex? Sure. Yeah. So Investex, we give broker dealers a platform to invest and trade in private securities. And we really kind of do that two ways. So one is we provide um, diversified funds that would be kind of 15 to 20 late stage venture pre-IPO companies in a fund so that wealth advisors and brokers and portfolio managers can 
give an asset allocation to this asset class for their clients. And the second is we have an ATS or an alternative trading system, um, which is basically like a dark pool that allows for block trading wholesale for institutional clients of, of shares in private securities. So for example, if an institutional client wanted to sell $50 million of open AI and another institutional client wanted to buy $30 million, they could match up on our platform in order to be able to do a block trade. And then we help to facilitate kind of price discovery, help with matching, help facilitate offline transaction to clear and settle that trade. So at the end of the day, we really help all parts of the broker dealer and their customer groups from wealth management to private clients, private banking clients, into institutional clients to be able to access, invest, trade in the private markets in a much more effective way than they do today. So you're much like a secondary market for private securities. Well, we do that for sure through our, our wholesale platform, which is institutional only. So a retail mm -hmm. investor or someone like that could not access that platform. It's a regulated ATS with the SEC. Um, but we provide product structures like our diversified funds, or we also provide single name funds. So if you want to invest in OpenAI or SpaceX, for example, as a single fund, we also offer that for clients to be able to add those to their portfolio. And you'll see sometimes, for example, different use cases where, you know, if you're a, a high net worth client or an ultra high net worth client, you want to get access to this asset class. So you might use a fund for, from an allocation perspective, or you might, for example, be really interested in ed tech. And so you have a number of companies in education technology and public markets, but you want to add some from the private markets. Because one of the things about the private markets is that's really where the growth rates are. And even as you've seen, like over the last you know year and a half, as the public growth rates have come down. You know, the privates have come down too, but the privates were 30, 40, 50, 60% growth rates and the publics were, you know, 10, 15, 20. And now the publics are, you know, two, five, eight, right? Mm -hmm. and, the, and the privates are 20, 30, 40. And so if you want growth, you have to be in the private markets. I mean, that's where growth companies are today, right? They're not in the public markets. And so you see hedge funds recognize that too, if you think about institutionally, you know, where they see how do we get more exposure to growth as part of what we're doing. We're also seeing strategies in hedge funds, for example, where they might, you know, buy the privates long and short the publics, you know, and so different strategies working with where you've got really different price dislocations happening in those two markets, right? The private markets, lack of transparency, no price discovery, bid offer spreads that are gigantic. You know, the public market's massively efficient. You can't beat the Goldman Sachs computers, they used to joke. Right. So the private markets have a lot of benefits for investing because of the fact that they're so inefficient. You know, there's opportunities to make alpha. Indeed, you had mentioned uh, that you uh, help them clear and settle trades. Are you, do you are you a custodian? How do you how do you settle those trades? Yeah, we use we use custodians to do that. But the, the main construct in private markets, though, is they every company has a different way of how they settle the trade. Right, because you have to clear it on the cap table of the company. These are private companies. So they're mm -hmm. not using DTC, you know, they're not using a uniform exactly. way, right, of, of clearing and settling. And so, you know, what we do is because of our expertise and our knowledge of the different issuers and how they, they settle trades and how also you have to deal with the shareholder agreements, right, and ROFRs and different aspects of those types of things that exist in the private markets. There's a lot of nuances in private markets. So, so from our client's perspective, to our broker-dealer partners and our and institutional partners, we help to facilitate that because we have deep, deep knowledge in terms of how to transact. And, it, and more, it's more kind of, you know, just process 
versus you know something that massively complicated but there are some complications that we help kind of get through those processes, and and they're typically related to rofers can you explain to the audience who isn't familiar with private uh transactions what a rofer is yeah so if you're a private company typically the way you raise capital and your, and your capital structure is developed is the initial start of the company you would have some common shares that get distributed amongst founders uh, maybe early employees, and then you know seed shareholders who would come in and give you an initial round of capital, and they typically would get kind of common shares as well. So these would all be common vanilla shares that you have in any kind of corporation. And then as you uh, build uh, your business, you get access to venture capital. The best companies get access to venture capital. They would come in and start to take preferred shares, and preferred shares basically say that they have certain rights over the common shares. And every time you raise another round, there's another preferred round that kind of go on top of the last preferred round. And so you basically build this waterfall of rounds that happen, and they all have different preferences that create different protections for new and money coming in each time. And so as a result of that, there's a lot of complications related to how do shares transfer. And so it's governed by a shareholder agreement. And so the shareholder agreement basically creates different uh, rules and regulations related to these different classes of shareholders. You know, so they're all pretty straightforward at a company. There's a shareholder agreement that basically sets the rules for how things work. But part of those rules that exist in every company is the ability for certain groups to basically have a right of first refusal, which is a roper, over the buying or selling of other shares. So, for example, Craig, if you and I both participate in the Series C round of a company, right, we would have a roper that says that if Craig wants to sell, I get to buy it first because I also participate in that round. And so myself and the other six investors in that round, we all get the ability to actually say we would like to buy it or we don't. And if we don't, then we just say we don't want to exercise a rofer, and then it would be allowed to be transferred to that other party that wants to buy it. Now, the company also always has a rofer too. So, you know, there's there's other investors that have rofers, and then the company can always say, you know what, Greg, I'm not letting you sell your shares to Marcus who wants to buy them. I'm going to actually rofer them ourselves. We're going to buy them from you instead and cancel the shares and do something else with them. So these are things that we have to navigate that take time to go through because, you know, at the company, they have to go through usually a board process and things like that to create transfers of shares. Whereas in the public markets, it's instantaneous, right? So it just happens instantly. You know, DTC settles it, you know, changes ownership, you know, and, and everything happens in, you know, T plus two, right? Or trade mm -hmm. plus two days. So, but in, in private markets, every company has a different process too, typically. And they all have different shareholder agreements and they all have different ropers. So, hmm. which makes things incredibly complicated that everyone's doing things a little differently. Do you provide any stability or common methodology across just to when, when you're offering liquidity or uh, secondary market trading? Well, in the trade settlement process, they're all pretty common. They have nuanced differences, but, you know, they're all pretty common what has to happen, right? And so there's different timing components. Like it might take one company six weeks to go through the ROFR process. Another company might take three months. Another company might take two weeks. So, hmm. so those parts are different, but usually it's more time-driven. When you think about the inefficiencies in the market or the access to the market, you know, um, this is, I think, where we really help our partners shine. Like, for example, compliance is the number one issue for broker dealers. You know, I always joke the number two issue for broker dealers is compliance and the number three issue is compliance. Right. And so com compliance being such an important driver, you know, they want to make sure that if, if we get access to this asset class, 
which today, by the way, if you look at just venture back companies over a billion dollars, you know, it's a $3.4 trillion asset class. I mean, it's a massive asset class that very few people have exposure to, uh, which is another issue, another question. But, you know, so, but the point is, how do we drive that through to our customers, give that optionality to our customers in a compliant way? And so, so we manufacture products like a diversified fund and single investment vehicles that are done in a compliant way that meets the driving needs really of the broker dealer, right? And so, so that from a compliance perspective, it can be offered to customers and to clients. On the trading side of it, it really is around how do we get the ability to, to surface a bid or offer to complete a trade. In the private markets today, I'll give you an example, Craig. Um, two years ago, the markets were very, very, uh, were more efficient because there's so much demand in 2021, right? And, and it's almost like the hype cycle of what was happening in the public markets was driving a lot of people to the private markets. And the reason for that was because you could never get the IPO shares. You know, if you look at the kind of companies that we invest in, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, I think underwriter, lead underwriter for like 93% of them, you know, something like that. It's it's that extreme, right? And so, so unless you're best client, you, shares. you can't get access, right? You can't get access to those shares, right? And so people were going to the private markets for that. Well, then what happened is the public markets re-rated when, when risk-free went to like four and a half percent, you know, it's almost 5% today, you know, and so all things were re-rating. Well, the reality is, is that, you know, in the private market, it's so inefficient. If you want to buy a security today, the private markets, you have to get access to information. You have to find a seller at the price point. And so what we're seeing is bids and offers in private securities had 20, 40% spreads, right? Oh, wow. you know, institutional investors didn't want to pay and new and old sellers didn't want to sell down because they're pub private. They didn't need to sell. And I so think the, the public compared to the private market in the same sector. Correct. So let's just say, let's take a SaaS business, for example, right? Back in 2021, SaaS companies were trading in the publics up in the 20s, 20 times sales, right? right? You know, mm -hmm. something like that. The long-term average in SaaS businesses, if you look at 10-year average, is about 7.8 times, right? Hmm. And so, so in the privates, they lagged the publics typically, right? Because they have no liquidity discount. So instead of being 20, let's just say that they were 14, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. the publics re-rated, right? The publics re-rated the other way. They actually went down to like, five and four times at one oh, point yeah. last year, right? And so if you're in, if you're an investor and you invested in a SaaS business at 12 times and the public markets are five, right? Hmm. How do you sell that without a massive re-rating, right? Right. So, so what happens, they just said, we're not going to sell it. So what we'll do is we'll take two dead years on our performance, right? You know, where basically, because you've got to remember the growth is in the private market. So if that company continues to grow at 30%, it's catching right. up to its valuation, right? So, you know, so it's catching up to it, but you've got a couple of dead years in kind of the, the term that you're holding that investment, right? Mm -hmm. And so it lowers returns, which is what happens, but you don't need to fire sale it, right? And so, yeah. so the market went illiquid. It just basically went illiquid, yeah. right? So yeah. a lot of that happened. Fire sale, indeed. Yeah, we don't want that. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the trends you saw when you started Investex? What was it? What were you seeing in the market, and what gave you the impetus to to launch this new business? Well, you know, the, the way we started the business was I built the kind of Canadian version of Motley Fool, which is you know you may may be familiar with, cover the public equity markets, mm -hmm. and we saw. What we saw happen in the private markets where companies were staying private longer, when you looked at it in more detail, and sometimes you have to 
be really in it to see it, right? And this is what happened for us was that, you know, there was about 10 or 12 institutional investors that were the ones that made all the investments. So if you look at Amazon, it went public at $444 million market cap. Facebook went public at $104 billion. But, the, but there was about 10 or 12 institutional investors that were the ones that kept investing. And so they were making all the returns of these companies, you know, growing and getting bigger by the time they went public. And so, and this was Wellington and Fidelity and TPG and others like that, and the same ones there. And so we said, look, there's got to be a way for us to be able to get a broader access to investors to get access to this asset class. And so that was kind the of usual suspects, the Wellington Fidelities. What's that? The usual suspects. Well, back then, like in in 2013, they hadn't all developed up that way. But but you know, but yes, you know, to, to some degree, the usual suspects. So. So we saw that that the private markets were were um, you know creating a lot of returns to a small group of people. We said we got to be able to have a, a broader group of people get access to those markets. So then the second thing we saw, so we saw companies staying private longer, small group of club investors getting access. You know the returns were there because the growth rates were there, and so and then when we looked at the broker dealers, the broker dealers were really struggling with how do we actually deal with this because again going back to our number one priority is usually compliance. Right. And how do we deal with this in a compliant way in a market that's illiquid, that doesn't have good transparency, that doesn't have all these issues that we expect and need in a compliant market environment? Right. And you see in 2021, June, they came out with, you know, regulation, uh, best interest, right? Regulation BI. So adding regulators adding more and more to the compliance bucket. Right. And so, so this is what we saw. And then when we saw, like, how do you invest in these secondaries, for example, in the private markets, we saw all these other issues like, well, how do you find the match? How do you find buyers or sellers, right? How do you find price discovery? What do you pay? In the early days, Craig, we would see the same stock, like literally the same stock, trade 25% difference in price in the same week. Like, how can that happen in any rational market where someone paid 25% more for the same security in the same week, right? Well, that only happens in markets that are massively inefficient. So what we understood was that, look, there is amazing opportunity to make money in a market that's inefficient like that. But at the same time, we have to do it in a way that's very deliberate, that re reduces risk, that also manages compliance. And then basically from that, we built investment products to help with our partners so that they can give their clients access. And we also have direct clients as well. We have a large number of direct clients. And then we also built a trading platform to help them with block trades institutionally. Because as 2021 came, what we saw is more and more institutions were going into the market too. They knew they needed to get exposure to these companies and put them in their portfolio. And we started to get you know crossover funds, which had been around for a while. But then we started to get hedge funds coming in. We started to get more institutional capital moving into the private markets to get exposure to this asset class and this return profile. You're on mute. I'm very familiar with block trading, Marcus, and um, I'm, I, I don't understand how it works in the private market. So in a public market, you have got a thousand accounts and I want to buy Apple for all of them and uh, different numbers of shares I'm buying. I roll that up into one large trade, push that out to like a Citadel or some large firm. They handle that thing, send it back to me. Then I have to allocate all the shares to all the separate accounts, but it's easy because they're public stocks. If these are private securities, they require a lot of paperwork for each investor. You, how do you move, how do you block that up and then reallocate that out to other investors? 
Yeah, so we use, to do that, what we do is we use um, a single purpose vehicle or a special purpose vehicle structure, right? So we will have a single, think of it like a single fund structure, right? That buys open AI, buys $50 million of open AI. And then basically underneath it segments that for our limited partners, right? And so the limited partners might put in $500,000, might put in $2 million or $10 million, or maybe as low as, a, you know, $75,000 or $100,000. And that's how that allocation happens. So from the company's perspective, it's one trade with an institutional asset manager that, you know, but below it, like every fund has a number of limited partners that would participate, right? And so, so our limited partners, we have a large number of limited partners that we basically um, have dedicated funds where there's dedicated capital, where we're just making all the investment decisions, adding it to it. And then we have sidecars in effect, or these single investment vehicles where people can invest in a single security. So those are the different ways that that happens. When you look at block trades, though, on our ATS, um, you know, or OTC desk, if you want to think of it that way, uh, block trades, there really are point to point. So they're single fund to single fund. It's institutional only. It's wholesale only. There's not like, so it's Fidelity selling, but represented by City, and it's, you know, uh, Tiger Global being represented by BAML. And, you know, they are, are basically indicating orders and creating a match. And therefore, then that trade settles, and then it, but it settles point to point. So it's settling back to Fidelity or, or Tiger, for example, right? So whereas if you think about retail, you know, wealth management or portfolio management channel, where you have lots of smaller customers, by smaller meaning, you know, 100 grand, 500 grand, $5 million, mm -hmm. not, not 25 right. grand on, you know, <laughs> on uh, yeah. some of the, you know, those kind of platforms that trade like that, right? So. The pre What's your minimum investment size? Is it 50 or 100 grand? Yeah, that's right. Depending on the product, it's 50 or 100 grand. That's right. So you're already talking about it's a credit product only, qualified purchaser product only. At some firms, it's you know 25 million dollars in assets and higher. Some firms, it's five million and higher. Some firms, one million and higher. You mentioned direct clients. Who are some? Give me an example of what a direct client is and how their investment will look different, will be structured differently. Yeah. So some some um, states or areas where we don't have, say, um, a wealth manager or broker dealer in it, you know, we may have some clients direct. Uh, we have a broker dealer, FINRA dealer that we used for that um, that's in all the states. And so obviously where there's partner firms, you know, we direct business to the partner firms in certain states they don't have it. So we have, you know, a number of family offices, ultra high net worth clients that deal with us direct as well. Again, for, you know, asset allocation into this asset class, you know, late stage venture pre-IPO through our fund structure. Um, and what's one of the unique things about our funds is our funds compared to most other alternatives, our funds only five years, right? Whereas most funds are 10 or 20 years in terms of duration, ours are five years. And one of the unique things about it too is that we do call capital over two years, but after the second year, we return capital to clients. So every liquidity event through an IPO or, M or a trade sale or an M&A transaction, you know, we, ret we return capital back to clients. So it's the unique function of the fund. It doesn't reinvest after the second year. And so the, the capital requirements um, it, for a client is actually much faster in terms of DPI. So if you look at basically distributions to paid in capital, you know, we are in, in, in a very, very high bracket there in terms of getting clients back to capital faster because of the nature of how our funds are, which is very good for that asset, for that group of customers, right? They, they like to have, mm -hmm. you know, capital back faster than, you know, large institutional clients, for example. Can you explain to audience may not be as familiar with private investments why a five-year fund is so much better than a 10 or 20? What does it mean by returning capital after two years? 
Yeah. So what happens is that in, in most private funds, if you go to a venture fund or an infrastructure fund or a private equity fund, you know, most of those funds are basically 10 year funds, right? They have a four year investment period. Um, you know, then they have this harvest period. If you think about venture, you know, where those companies just take time to grow. Right. And then, of course, in venture, most of the, the, the companies are zeros in the portfolio, but they're looking for one or two companies to basically make most of the returns for the portfolio. That's the strategy in venture. Right. And so private equity different. Private equity basically is control positions. So they buy a majority position, usually 80 percent or more of a company. And then what they do is much like a mortgage in a house. They use debt to basically, you know, have the business grow faster than the premium that they're paying on the debt in order to leverage more returns back to the company, much like you do with your house, right? You have a 6% mortgage on your home. If your home over time grows faster than that, you'll actually make more money than what you're paying in the mortgage, right? And so, mm -hmm. so private equity works the same way. And so, so in order to have those criteria though, you have to have longer term, your capital at work longer time, right? In order for those effects to happen. In our business where we're capturing value is we're, we're capturing value basically in the last kind of three years of the company's life. We're targeting, you know, the last three years where the company's still growing quickly, you know, it, it has, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to take risk of a company figuring out its business, its business model, its customers, its supply chains, all those kind of things. Those have been figured out in generally. What we're trying to do is capture the last three years of growth before, and the discount that exists because it's illiquid in the private markets, and then basically, you know, get the returns post that when they have a trade sale or a public event, right? And so, so because of that nature, we're just naturally presupposed to buying and investing in amazing quality businesses with amazing quality leadership teams, um, but na naturally at the end of their private life versus at the longer time period. So how does that translate? Translates that basically we make the investments in our fund over two years, and then every time there's a liquidity event, we just return capital back to clients. So can you give me an example of a liquidity event? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, Airbnb. So we invest in Airbnb, you know, we owned it for about two and a half, two, two and a half years. They went public. That's the liquidity event. So it takes it from private to now an efficient market, the public equity markets. Right. And so we are able to now be able to capture the returns on that investment by being able to sell those shares in the public markets. So what we're doing is we're taking, we're making an investment in a very inefficient market. And then we're exiting out in a very efficient market, right? And so, and that's where you, you know, where it's a great opportunity to make money is because we're investing where the market's super inefficient, private markets, right? Lack of transparency, price discovery, bids and offers hard to find, you know, information, very few people have it. And then we're going out to a market that's massively efficient, the public markets where information is everyone, right? You can trade on, you know, hundreds of a cent, you know, like the lower low cost, everyone's got data, right? And so. So this is the, the arbitrage that we're basically capturing is going from an inefficient market to an efficient market and capturing the returns. So the only problem with that is if they never get to the efficient market, if they're stuck in the private markets and can't get the liquidity, then you're going to have a problem selling. Yeah. So there's two, there's two issues. That's, so that's a good point. So, you know, typically most private companies, that's the case in these companies that we invest in, these are typically number one or number two in the world in their area. Right, because mm -hmm. these are the best of venture. These are the these are the venture back companies that are you know now at, at round D, E, or F. Right, they're at the late stage of the business. They've had lots of access to capital. They've got the best investors in the world behind them. And usually, as I mentioned, they're number one or number two in the world in their space. So, so if 
you need to sell something like that. You can sell it in the private markets. Obviously, it's inefficient and it's not a great way to sell it, but you can sell in the private markets. Um, and we take advantage of, of guys that are dislocated there. Um, but eventually they do have a liquidity event because they, you know, or or in most cases do have a liquidity event because they are backed by the venture capital firms that sit on the boards of these companies. They can only return capital to their clients when there's an exit event. The only way they can really get a true exit event with for their positions that are usually sizable if it's one of the winners is through a public event or through a trade sale, right? And so, so we see most of them exit out that way. Now, sometimes it does take longer. If you look at a company like Palantir, for example, you know, it took them 17 years before they exited, right? Some, some are shorter, but for us, our average hold period, it's just under three years for, for an investment. Indeed. Yeah, some firms take a long time to exit. And the, so the, uh, can you explain, uh, uh, I'm pulling up these different terms that I think the audience might not know. What is a trade sale? A trade sale is an M&A transaction. So you're basically, you're sold typically to a strategic buyer, right? So you can be told, sold to private equity as well. But the companies that we invest in, which are growth oriented companies, are not typically what private equity buys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so private equity typically is buying more stable, you know, slower growing, consistent 20 year cash flow, 20 year, you know, businesses mm-hmm. like that. They want to optimize, they want to use the leverage or debt, right, to basically be part of the purchase price. And then they basically want to optimize it so that they can create the return. In growth equity, uh, typically it's strategic buyers, right? So that would buy that company. Uh, you know, example, Figma, you probably heard of was bought by Adobe, right? So yep. that, you know, it over, it, I wouldn't say it overpaid. It paid a high premium because it's very, very strategic, right? And so now eventually that company could have went public as well, right? So, you know, like a Palantir that went public or, or an Airbnb that went public. But, you know, a lot of them do exit out through trade sale. Because a lot of those big companies, this is how they get their growth. Like if you look at Salesforce, Google does an acquisition a week. I mean, this is how they grow, right? The internal businesses sure. are usually not growing that much. They use, you know, basically acquisitions right. to grow their business. You had mentioned that, um, well, we're actually running out of time. This is going a lot faster than I thought. The Isn't it an issue that you're not going to, you're going to have the same issues with late stage or late stage companies if they're on their series D, E, or F, that it's going to be harder to make money because of the high valuations so isn't that going to be a doesn't that become a a, a hurdle for your investors? Uh, well, high valuations is relative to something, right? So I think the important thing about anything is price paid basically has some uh, peer group set that it's looking at to determine whether it's high or low, right? And so you know, discipline investing is really really important as it is ever anywhere, right? And so the way we would think about it would be, you know. What is the peer group, the public peer group trade at? You know, so if the public, let's just go back to the SaaS business. So the public peer group in a SaaS business today is trading at six and a half times. The long-term average is 7.8 times uh, revenue sales, or sorry, sales to uh, value. Um, so, so if you look at that, if you're paying 10 times, well, you'd say you're overpaying today, right? If you pay five times, you'd say you're paying a discount to it. So that's better. But the thing you have to look at is those are important elements to look at, but you also have to look at growth rate. Right, because if the if the peer group, the public peer group is growing at 15% and your business is growing at 55%, right? In one year, you're going to be in a in a discount position, right? Compared yep. to it compared to today. And so, so the way we like to look at it is, how do we look at it over three years, and how do we look at what we think the exit value multiples will be in that company, right? Mm-hmm. And so, they're not that hard to look at because the exit value is just looking at the public comp group, 
they got to get the mm-hmm. copy right, but you know, say you've got some decent level of aptitude for that, right? So, so once you've got that and you look at, you know, do I want to, so the way we look at it today, if let's just say today, let's just use some easy numbers, you know, it's six is today's value price to sales for SaaS businesses. The long-term average is 7.8, right? And so if we look at that business three years from now, we'd say, could we make three X cash on cash return at six? Right now, if we can buy it at a price point that makes us 3x cash on cash return at a six multiple, and it expands to 7.8 back to the mean, then we're gonna do tremendously well, right? And so so what that does, it creates a price that you wanna pay in the private markets. You really, what it does, when you look at the data, it says, look, for this company, I will pay $27 a share for this company, right? Now, whether someone would sell it to you for $27 or not, that's a different issue, right? So, but you know what to pay. That's the great thing about it is you know what to pay. Like in the public markets, if it's trading at 35 and you go with 27, you just say, I'm not buying it, right? <laughs> so you wait there. But in the private markets, what's really interesting, because the market's so illiquid, we basically, we put in these low cost bids like this or low price bids. And eventually someone actually does sell it to you because <laughs> if mm. someone gets desperate, they need liquidity. And all of a sudden you get hit on a bid. You're the only bid maybe in the market in that stock, right? And you're buying it at $27. And so- this is where, you know, there's a really great opportunity to be really successful investing here. Let's hope so. Uh, so surveys have shown high net worth investors have around 40% allocation to alternatives on average, and a lot of it's in private equity. So is this a strategy that only high net worth individuals, uh, is, it a, is it a strategy that you recommend high net worth individuals or even upper mass Afro investors should try to emulate? Look, I think that... Um, there's two or three lenses there, right? Our personal belief is that, you know, that the wealth gap between the middle class and, and the, um, you know, kind of wealthy has been created through this mandate regulatory-wise, and I would say from the investment community of the 60-40, you know, equity fixed income split that you should have in your portfolio. And so those that have had access to alternative products have started to really widen the gap because they're able to uh, have a diversified product set versus, especially because interest rates have been so low for 20 years, that you know, no one's made any money, and it's also the highest tax rate, right? And so, so for an effective basis, it's been a very poor strategy. And I, the regulars have actually figured this out too that they have to change some of these rules because their policy is actually creating more of this wealth gap. So going back to that, 100%, you know, high net worth, ultra high net worth, you know, have exposure to. They already have exposure that they don't need to be told they need to have exposure to it. They have exposure to it, and they're getting more exposure to it. So. You know, I think from that construct, you know, what, what, but if you look at kind of alternatives, there's different types, right? There's infrastructure, there's private equity, there's real estate, there's growth equity or, or, or late stage venture pre IPO that we invest in. There's venture capital itself. And they all have different risk pr- uh, parameters and profiles, and they all have different return profiles. I would say, Craig, the thing that I'm most excited about in terms of where we are. In the, in the investment area, which is, you know, pre-IPO, growth equity, late-stage venture, they're all really the same, you know, different words for the same area of investing, is that the, the time period is much more effective for most of those clients, right? So if you're an institutional client and you're thinking about investing over, you know, 100 years and 25 years, then yes, match into infrastructure, go buy bridges, go buy things that are going to be income producing assets for 50 years, makes a lot of sense, right? So, but if you are, you know, more of a high net worth client or ultra high net worth client, liquidity can be an important part of what happens in your life. You can have a medical emergency with family members. You can have education issues. You have a whole bunch of things that require access to capital, right? So looking at a five-year fund really matches into that profile a lot more efficiently. 
And the other mm -hmm. piece I like about it compared to like venture capital is in venture capital, when a company's raising $10 million, they can only choose three investors, right? Mm -hmm. They literally can choose three investors. So the best quality investors, if you think about Sequoia and Andreessen, Excel, they get access mm -hmm. to the best quality deals because of the fact that they're going to take three investors and you want to have the highest quality names in your cap table. Well, when you look at a company that's, I think our average company is like three and a half billion. When you look at that, buying a $25 million, $50 million position, lots of people can own that. I mean, not lots, but, you know, relatively speaking, right? And so, so the ability to get access is also really valuable, right? And so, so as a result of that, if you invest in venture, it's hard to make money because the top fund managers keep getting the best returns because they get the best access to deal flow. Most don't, right? And so you have to be top quartile fund manager in venture, you know? And so when you look at where we are, you know, there's broader access to product. You know, and so we use different things to create competitive advantage, which would be more our edges, like we use our ATS, right? Our ATS helps us understand pricing more effectively on markets, right? You know, just as an example. So, but there's different ways that we do it. But when I look at the risk profile, right, we also don't have any zeros, right? There's no companies that have gone to zero because we're investing in high quality companies. Now, at the same time, there's no 20 Xs, right? Because we're not yeah. taking that level of risk, right? So but I like lots of singles, right? Like just make lots of singles in an inefficient market, capture returns, deliver them to clients. It's a pretty straightforward formula. Although you mentioned OpenAI. They they tr almost tripled in value just this year. They're they're raising funds that are almost 90 billion yeah. valuation. Yeah. So is that something you see? Is Is, is that... Now the market, the private market certainly can't be described as frothy these days, you know, considering the, the great downturn we've had since well, since 2021. But a $90 billion valuation makes them almost on par with Charles Schwab. Is that reasonable or is that just hype? Well, you know, it's funny. If you look at, you know, some of these companies in the private markets, OpenAI being one of them now, up at $90 billion. Um, But I think it's like, if you look at the S&P 500, obviously the largest companies in the world, you know, if you took the private landscape of private venture back companies, I think it's like 11 or 13 would fit into the S&P 500. They're that big, mm -hmm. right? So private companies can be really, really big in the private market. It's just because they haven't gone public doesn't mean they're not massive inside. Look at SpaceX, for example, right? You know, $140 billion, right? And so, but I'd say that, you know, AI, the reality is there's very few ways to get exposure to AI, pure AI in the public markets. Right. And so so you'll see in, in where there's small supply with real quality players, there literally is like five companies or less. Right. That have real scale and size so far in AI. Right. There's lots of small, you know, small companies, but really four or five players or three or four, you know, OpenAI is one and Tropics another, for example. Right. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the capital flows there because they recognize that 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 AI could be bigger than the Internet. Right. And so if you think of it from that perspective, well, yeah, you're you're it's expensive. There's no question on any metric. Right. But, you know, OpenAI is also the fastest company to get to a billion dollars in, in history, you know, literally in history. Right. So in revenues. So and and the transformable change that's happening in that, you know, but it's speculative. This is a speculative play based on valuation. Right. No one's going to say this is a value stock. No one's thinking it's a value stock, right? So, but there's still insatiable demand for it because it could literally be worth a trillion dollars, you know. So much different than Nvidia, right? I mean, this is a software business with revenue, you know, versus a hardware business too, right? So it's um, and Nvidia obviously has a lot of other business besides just the chip for AI. In my line of work, we see a lot of startups, a lot of companies come to us with new ideas. So, so we we kind of catch some of the trends and one of the trends we've been seeing is in alternative investment marketplaces like investx so we've seen a rash of them either in very acquisitive like iCapital 
uh, case, uh, the firms launching in different areas of alternative investments, Halo, Luma, Simon, Opto from Joe Lonsdale, Fundrise. So how does Investex differentiate yourselves in this crowded, crowded segment? Yeah, I think in any time you look at, you know, kind of this broad word of marketplaces or platforms, they, you have to actually look at what they do, right? And everyone kind of does a little bit a different thing. So, you know, if you look at iCapital, which I think they've got an incredible leadership team, a great company, um, you know, they've really helped to pioneer the ability for retail investors to get into high quality funds. So if you want to be a Blackstone fund, you, you couldn't do that unless you wrote a very, very large check or institutional. And so they created fund to fund products with Apollo, Blackstone, companies like this that the average person can get into, right? But the core of their business is really creating fund-to-fund -fund structures, right? So, which is very, very different than, you know, I want to have access to late-stage venture, or I want to have, you know, block trading of, of private securities. I mean, these are very different things, right? Case is very, is much more similar to iCapital that way. If you look at Fundrise, really started off around crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, Right, you know, small amounts to do go to real estate and now moved into some other asset classes, but again, very much direct to consumer, right? And so, from us, you know, we don't want to compete with our customers. Our, our partners are the broker dealers, you know, and the banks and the, the firms that private wealth client base, right? You know, we want them to be successful by us providing services, technology, and products that help them to be successful and not compete with their customer base, right? All of those firms like that, you know, that are direct to customers that way, they compete with the banks and brokerage firms, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, we think that the banks and brokerage firms, though, rule most of the capital, right? Because they also, if you think about institutionally, you know, they can give research away, you know, the soft dollar deals, like all those kind of things on how things get paid for can be through trading and transacting in private securities because publics are worth, you know, basis points now, like four basis points to trade. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no money there, right? So, so ultimately, there's different things like that, but everyone's a little bit different. But I think in terms of you know, we're really centered on really deeply understanding our customer, right? Understanding the broker dealer and how to really serve that customer so that we can serve all the constituents at the firm, help them to be able to be in the market in a really institutional way that also, you know, really drives through with compliance. Marcus, you said it all. Uh, we went way over time, but it was just an interesting conversation. Where can people find out more information about Investex? Yeah, so if you're a broker-dealer and really like what we do, we'd love to talk to you. You can go to investdex.com. If you are a direct investor in a state where we don't have broker-dealers, you can go to Investex Capital, which is our fund business, um, and you can see that as well there in our portfolio of amazing companies that we've invested in. And, um, you know, we'd love to talk to you and reach out. Marcus, thanks so much for being on the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Craig. Hey, it's Craig again. Here are my top five takeaways from this interview. Investex provides a platform for broker-dealers to invest in and trade private securities in two ways, through diversified funds of late-stage pre-IPO uh, pre companies and through an ATS for institutional clients to do block trading of private shares. Number two, for retail clients, Investex uses a single-purpose vehicle structure to aggregate investments from multiple LPs into one institutional fund that makes the investment. We're seeing more and more of that type of structure lately. Number three, how do you determine value for late stage private companies? Thought this was interesting. InvestX models out an expected exit multiple based on public comps and targets a purchase price that can deliver a 3x return over a three year holding period. This takes into account future growth potential versus current valuations. 
Right. That's it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. But before you go, head over to our website, azuregroup.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and subscribe to our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of wealth management goodness, news, information, updates. You will not be disappointed. Thanks again for listening, and talk to you all again next time. Thank you.